Hi, everyone. Welcome to Din and Daf. I'm Alana Steinhain, and we use this space to think about halacha conceptually. What we're doing today is the second of three in a mini-series about cheresh, shota, and katan. Those categories within halacha where the people who are those, um, who are characterized by those statuses are not considered from a halachic point of view, b'nei dat or b'no dat. And what we want to understand is a little bit more about each one of these categories, and especially for the cherish and the shoteh, to what degree do these things obtain today? So we looked at shota or shoteh first, and the reason we did that is because the cherish is then um, compared to the shoteh. So one thing that we should keep in mind, which is the Mishnah that started this all for us, Mishnah in Hachovel that says, If you get into a physical altercation with them, that's no good. Why? Because if you hurt them, God forbid, you have to compensate them. But if they hurt you, God forbid, they don't have to compensate you. And I love starting with that as our frame because it recognizes the full dignity and awareness of the situation of life experience of the cherish and the shote and the katan. That on the one hand, we want to make sure that they are protected. And on the other hand, we do not want to expect something from them that actually they are unable to do. So last week, we talked about psychosis and delusions in the conversation about shote. This week, we are talking about being deaf and being unable to speak in the case of the cherish or the chereshet. One thing we must, 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 must keep in mind is how long ago did Helen Keller live? I mean, the idea of somebody who was unable to communicate with the world because they were both deaf and unable to speak. It is only natural that they would be compared to a shota or a shota who didn't have medication, meaning there was people did not were unable to communicate about the same reality with each other because they saw reality completely differently. And this was the assumption about the cherish uh, as well, not only about the shota and the shota. And I would say that just as medication, thank God, has helped uh, change our understanding of the shota and the shota, so too uh, developments in everything from sign language to the teaching the deaf how to speak, schools for the deaf, have impacted our understanding of cherish and how that applies today. So what I want to do is I want to start with a pithy uh, Rambam that will just give us a general uh, baseline, I would say, to work with. I'm going to share my screen. One moment. Here we go. Let's try to get this into presentation mode even nicer. Okay, so the Rambam says in Hilchot Ishut, when we refer to a cheresh or a chereshet, we're talking about people who both cannot hear and cannot speak. Somebody who can speak even if they cannot hear. Or they can hear, but they cannot speak. They're treated like anybody else um, in the eyes of halacha. And anybody who is... Uh, fully um, composmentous, I guess we, we would say, and are not uh, deaf and unable to speak and are not uh, under uh, the, gri the, the grip of psychosis or delusions, 
Nikraim, I don't know why the tough is there, Nikraim, Pikech, Upikachat. They're called a Pikech or a Pikachat, which literally means uh, smart, right? Because this whole conversation is about that, because that's how they understood it back in the day before psychotropic drugs and then back in the day before um, schools for the deaf, right? So the question really is for us, what is considered midaber, right? Because as soon as somebody who's deaf is able to be midaberet, is able to speak, then they're out of the category of being a chareshet, right? So what counts as dibor? So first things first, the Gemara and Gittin tells us essentially what doesn't count as dibor at least for somebody who is a cheresh or a chereshet from birth. So Amar Rav Kahana, Amar Rav, Rav Kahana says in the name of Rav, a cheresh who can speak in writing, meaning they can respond to things in writing. A get can be written to his wife. Now this is very strange because uh, halachically, a cheresh has kidushin dirabanan and gitin dirabanan, and it's strange to have a situation where a cheresh would want to give a get de oraita. Why would they want to give a get de oraita? So the Gemara tries to figure out maybe it's because this is actually Yibum and his brother was not a cheresh and he was a pikeach. So there's a zika, there's a um, marital bond that is de oraita. In order to break that marital bond, he needs a get at this point, right? Okay, maybe, right? Trying to figure out why he would need it. But suffice it to say, Rav Kahana seems to say that as long as the Cheresh can communicate in writing, great, that's good enough. Then the Gemara says, wait, 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 not so fast. Made today, we have another source that says, Cheresh lo achubo achar remizotav achar kvitzotav achar ketav yado. When it comes to a Cheresh, we don't follow, you know, uh, I would say like um, intimations that they make, maybe like a facial expression, like a wink or something, right? Or maybe a nod, I'm not sure, right? Or, you know, um, movements of like, maybe like um, motions with the mouth or what what they write. Only when it comes to trying to do transactions with portable items, meaning not with karka and also below begitten, not when it comes to get. So meaning we have one source that says a cheresh who can speak in writing, we'll listen to them. We have another source that says, meaning that will listen to them. What they do has halachic effectiveness, even on the level of the oraita when it comes to a get. We have another another source that says we wouldn't listen to them in writing when it comes to get. Maybe in terms of other things, maybe. So how does the Gemara work through this? Tanahi, it is a machloka tanaim. Ditanya, as learned in a brayta, Amr Rabshim Mengamliel, Rabshim Mengamliel says, when is this the case, right, that we can't, follow the testimony in writing of cheresh v'cheresh me'ikaro, if a person was born as a cheresh or a cheresh. If somebody was born with the ability to hear, with the ability to speak, and then they became a cheresh, right? You can have them write something and witnesses can sign it, right? So what does this tell you? It tells you that, halachically speaking, maybe writing can work as dibor, at least for some things, for somebody who wasn't born as a cheresh or a chereshet. But writing does not work as dibor for somebody who was born 
as a cheresh or a chereshet. So this is our baseline that whichever postgame are trying to figure out, does sign language count as dibor? Does speaking with um, a, a, a slurred speech or a speech impediment from somebody who is deaf, does that count as dibor? The what they're always going to be measuring against is they're always going to be measuring against writing. Writing does not count as Dibor for somebody who was born as a Hareshet or a Hareshet. What about these other things? Okay, so I'm going to take a look with you at three different positions that we find among uh, post-game 19th century or afterwards, okay? And each position says something slightly different. And I find that significant. I find that to be significant. Okay. The first is the Debre Chaim. Debre Chaim is Rabbi Chaim Halberstam. He's asked a question. You know, we have schools where people who are deaf go and learn, and they learn Torah, and they understand Torah. So what's this whole business about a cherish not being a bardat? And in fact, these people speak. It's more than they just know things and understand things. They also can communicate, right? Albeit the speech is somewhat augmented, meaning the speech is not the same. It doesn't sound the same as it would sound if they could hear. And also maybe they speak less, right? Now, it's interesting to consider the coincidence, meaning the coincidence of schools starting for the deaf to teach them how to speak and to teach them to learn and this chuba, right? In our case, he says, if they speak a little, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, even if it's slightly slurred, right? Then, as long as they're, you know, defined as a speaker based on what the Maharit said, we're skipping that for now. In this situation, I think they should be count, thought of as uh, in the eyes of the law. If you can speak a little, even if it's slurred speech, that's Dibur. You are now, you know, a Pikeh. And then he even says further, you know, the Ramav says in the Beirut Shemishnayot that if you can, if you can't hear, you can't speak. So if they can speak, it obviously means that they can hear a little bit. I'm going to leave that to the 21st century scientists. That is not me, right? But suffice it to say, the Dibur Chaim does something very important, very foundational here in recognizing a form of speech that may not sound the way someone would sound if they could hear but is still a form of speech and it's a form of dibor. And somebody might become a middaberet ve'ina shomat. Okay. Rav Asher Weiss goes a step further. Contemporary Posik still alive today. And he says, let's talk sign language. So the first thing he says, before I tell you anything about sign language, I want to note the following. The way we think about cherish today is so different than the way we think about cherish in the third century, right? If it was up to me, that all the postkim I've mentioned, they were all speaking about their time. Most of them, most of them were like Shotim. It's true. And only, you know, one or two would actually be able to overcome their limitations. And to get to a place where, you know, their intelligence was allowed to flourish, I would say. That's how I would say it. But in our time, when the vast majority of people who are deaf 
are able to come to full dot. And they, they function like anybody else, whether through sign language or through reading lips. You know, these people are like anybody else. You know, they, they're really like anybody else. And when it comes to, you know, here in Jerusalem, Zachina, we're so we're so fortunate. Um, we have a kolel of people who come to learn who are there. Every one of them is deaf and can't speak. Meaning, go look, they're learning Gemara just as well as anybody else. How could you even think about them and Shotim in the same sentence? Remember, Shotim, we're talking about people who didn't have the availability of drugs to help them, um, you know, manage their psychosis. Okay. And now he gets to, on the, on the basis of that, he gets to sign language. You know, I have a question. I'm not sure. In the following issue, he says, maybe somebody who can speak fluently and consistently with people using sign language should be considered somebody who can speak but can't hear. Maybe, maybe that should be deep work. Are we talking about an oath of some sort? Do we need the person to actually speak in order to communicate? No. In a case of a neder, in a case of an oath, you need somebody to actually do be They have to speak, right? But not just to communicate with people. What do I care if they're speaking through, if they're communicating through? a noise, or they're communicating through moving their lips, or they're communicating through their hands. Oh, I wonder if it's mitakshir or mitkasher. Oh, maybe it's mitakshir. I think I've been reading it wrong. As long as a person is able to communicate, right? No, maybe it's mit. I don't know. Israelis, you have to help me out. Right? As long as the person can speak in, can communicate in a fluid manner and can use a language, right? Like sign language, it's it's language, right? It's better than writing because we know from the Gemara and Gittin, writing is not going to work as Dibor for somebody who was a Cherish from their birth. Because that, that doesn't work. Because writing doesn't, isn't used as a medium for communication that is fast and fluid. Now, I have to say, that's not necessarily true, right? Like texting as a form of writing, it totally is a medium that's fluid and fast. I don't know what he would say about that, right? But it's an interesting distinction. He's trying to say, ktiva is one thing, but svatsi manim is something else. And we haven't found in the Gemara and Poskim, only that the following doesn't work. When a cherish answers questions in writing, yes to the things that should be yes and no to the things that should be no. What do you say? Like, call me. I don't know. Right? But if somebody, um, you know, can communicate in, 
using language, that's with the right, right? He's making another extension there, which is like in writing, all the person is doing is like saying one word, you know, it's like, or like check mark, you know, but in sign language, you're using language. And more than that, he says, you know, we understand the lack of speech differently than they used to understand it. He says, if you're a era can it even, it makes even more sense. Based on what we know today, the whole issue of being both deaf and unable to speak, that has nothing to do with some sort of mental inability to speak. The only reason why someone who's deaf can't speak is because they can't hear, right? Like these aren't two different issues. They are related issues, which means it's not sort of the big um, sort of mental impairment that they thought it was. And so he says, Therefore, it seems to me, that once the Dibra Chaim, who we started with, Paskin, that a Cherish who speaks even in a slurred speech is considered a Midaber. And once Rav Orbach and Rav El Yashiv pass in that way too, look it up. Who had in the same should be the case. For a cheresh who communicates through sign language. Because that person is communicating with people in a fully fluid manner. Like a person speaking to their friend. And this is what I would think in my humble opinion. If I was not afraid of my colleagues. Now, maybe it means I'm not afraid that somebody will disprove it. Maybe it means he thinks it's going to be an unpopular opinion. Not clear. And I want you to plumb the depths of this. So this gets really interesting. It's moved beyond the Debre Chaim. Maybe it's also because the development of sign language, right? If you look historically, the development of sign language, not only the development of sign language, but its recognition as a language, right? How long does that take? I want to look at a third, and with this I want to end, which is Rabbanate Sohar. Now, Rabbanate Sohar go, I think... Second. So yeah, I think that they go one step further because they're not Ule de Mistafina. They don't seem to be afraid of uh, making this psak, and we're about to see what that psak is. But interestingly enough, maybe it's also because they're a Moetzet, meaning they are a council that works together. And so they've come to their joint conclusion and there's power to that joint, con, you know, um, conventional decision, meaning they, they convened a group to, to make this decision. But let's see what they have to say. And they also do a lot um, in not just talking about the issue of what counts as Dibor, but also the reasons they have for wanting to try to include a cheresh or a chereshet um, as complete uh, pikeach and pikachet members of uh, halachic society. So we say halach lamaseh, 
our practical ruling, Ladad Moesed Rabbanit Sohar, based on our group. And remember, Rabbanit Sohar is a group of religious Zionist rabbis in Israel. Dinam shel rubam hamachria shel hachershim biyamenu kidin bikhim uchodak. Say, the ruling of the vast majority of hershim in our time are their pikach, right? And they say that in the paragraph four, most people who are cheresh actually are midaber ve'enoshamea, right? They have ways of communicating. Hachra'azo, this ruling, novat ve'ikara min ha'shikulim ha'lchatim ha'bayim comes from these, the following halacha calculations. So the first thing they mention is, First of all, we're resting ourselves on earlier poskim who had really weighty reasoning. Um, and I included it in, Roman, um, in footnote one, if you want to look some of them up, who have really weighty reasoning to understand a cheresh who's a bendat in our time or a batat in our time like anybody who can hear. But the other three are even more interesting, I think. Two. Say most of the shaylas that arise, you know, let's say, you know, someone counting for a minion, right? Most of those shaylas are related to dirabanas. And when it comes to a din dirabanan, we generally say that if we have a um, if we have a suffix, if we have a doubt, we're going to be lenient. By the way, I do have a question. You know, we did say that a cheresh um, a cheresh has kiddushin and gitin midirabanan, but not midoraita. I do wonder you know, how this would impact uh, the, the status of marriage. And specifically, it's not just a question when somebody was a cheresh or a chereshet before they got married, because then their kedushin was whatever that status is. So their gerushin will be the same status. But let's say somebody got married and then became a cheresh at some point along the way. I, I don't know how that, you know, I'm not exactly sure... Now, that's the example that the Gemara gave, but a little complicated, a little complicated, but either way, I don't know. I'm I'm in my own head about this a little bit. Like if there was a real dindo, right? What would they do? Okay. The third. Gado kavod abrio. Kavod abrio really, really, really matters, right? And quoting the Gemara in Brachot, Shehu dochet lota seshiba Torah. Kavod abriot overrides a negative commandment in the Torah. What negative commandment is that? Yisur mi de Rabbanon. Rabbinic, uh, rabbinic law, right? Uh, rabbinic prohibitions. Vera uilit sayin. And you know what we should note? Kigamim be'avvarat yun zeloyamashmauti. Let's say people would say, oh, kavod abriot, but that didn't apply in the conversation in the 15th century about this, will be a menu nowadays. Well, today, when they are treated as they should be, as equals among equals in society, of course, it's going to be humiliating for a cherish. If only in the Beit Knesset they're mistreated, right? Like, come on. Meaning if their status goes down only in the Beit Knesset. So that's the third. The fourth, 
החובה ההלכתית המוטלת על כל אחד ואחד מאיתנו, לקרב כל מי שהוא יהודי לעבודת השם. We all have a crime and a legal requirement to want to bring people close to turn mitzvot. And that's what we're trying to do. We want to bring the cherish and the chereshet close to Torah and mitzvot. Right? So this is going beyond what Rice did in a way. Right? In a way, it's going beyond. One is it's just saying, listen, we're just telling you, cherish, no. Pikeach. Pikeach, pikeach, pikeach. Pikacha, pikacha, pikacha. Two, they're telling you, well, we want to tell you what the other halachic nimukim are, the halachic reasonings are. And they're not only about what a pikech is. They're about whether we're talking about an issue that's durabanan or doraito, we're talking about kavod abrio, we're talking about kirub, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting that they do that. Now, the way that I want to end is clearly all of these hoskim, whether it's the Dibri Chaim or Rav Asher Weiss or Rabbanate Sohar, all of these poskim are recognizing a fundamental change in the ability of someone who is deaf to be able to communicate. And that is brought about not by, oh, you know, something magically changed in nature. It is brought about by real people advocating for schools for the deaf. Real people advocating for the recognition of sign language as a language. Real people, you know, lobbying. And I think it's really interesting to consider the interplay between the development of um, education for the deaf and the true vote that suddenly are realizing, wait a second, maybe we need to think about what constitutes deeper, right? Like we need to understand what constitutes deeper. So I find that very inspiring um, and I hope you do too. And we'll see you next week for Katan and Katana. Thanks for joining me.